0: 1. Basic Hip.
1: Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 480 for May 8th, 2019. On today's show, Soprano saxophonist Sam Newsom. Wait a minute. May 8th? Wasn't there just a show on May 1st? Yes, there was. As of right now, the Jazz Session is returning to a weekly format with new episodes every Wednesday. Why wait, I says. I'm going to make a show every week, and if you want to support the archiving of this era of jazz, then you can help me out by becoming a member. You can do that for just five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll get a monthly bonus episode, early access to every show, and more. Cool, right? It's been nearly a decade since Sam Newsome was last on the show. This time we're talking about his new solo saxophone album, Chaos Theory, Song Cycles for Prepared Saxophone. It's a really cool and fascinating record, and it starts like this. excited to welcome back to the show Sam Newsome. He's got a new solo saxophone recording called Chaos Theory, Song Cycles for Prepared Saxophone. It is absolutely fabulous. I don't know what that title might make you think of, but whatever you're thinking of, it is probably more than that. And uh, I was just blown away by it. I'm really excited to have Sam here on the show. Sam, thanks so much for being here.
0: Great. I mean, it's, it's a pleasure. I mean, I appreciate you having me on, too.
1: So I am a soprano saxophonist, and one of the things I like most about this album is that there are lots of times on it when I'm listening really closely and saying, boy, I just don't know what is making (laughs) that sound right now. (laughs) And I think that's pretty cool, I gotta say.
0: It's funny you just say that, because it doesn't happen often, but sometimes I'll listen to practice tapes, and I don't know what it is and it's kind of exciting because usually when I'm listening back it's just after I've recorded I'm just kind of assessing how I like it or ways I can make it better but for the most part I know what's there so it's always kind of Cool when I go back and I find stuff where I'm like, man, what is that? So, yeah, so I I, I can relate to that.
1: (laughs) Will you talk a little bit? This is certainly not your first foray into prepared saxophone. Will you talk about how you started doing it? How you started thinking about what else can I do with this physical object besides just blow through it as constructed?
0: (laughs) Well, I always say that, though, you know, a lot of this stems from making a commitment to only playing the soprano saxophone so by doing this i'm actually forced to go deeper into the sound of the saxophone also i have to go deeper into finding ways of just making that sound interesting so it all stems from that idea so and i'm one of these people I'm, i'm always on the internet uh on youtube just like Trying to find just weird stuff. Well, what well, stuff is going to inspire me? You and, and, and certainly it's not always saxophone players who are coming up with these creative ideas. But sometimes I'll hear things by other instrumentalists, and I'm like, oh, that might be interesting uh, on the saxophone. Yeah, I remember this one instance where a flute player she put a uh, the inside of a groan uh, a groan stick. I don't know if you know what that is. I don't. Well, a groan stick. It has a. This is a. It's a. It's a tube, plastic tube that has a a noisemaker inside. So what it is, once you turn it upside down, you know, as the as the noisemaker goes down the tube, it makes this groan sound.
1: Oh, now that so you describe it, it, I can picture it exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: so, so she had this idea where she she took the inside of that and she put it into the head joint. Of the flute, and she just blew through it, It just made this really crazy sound.
2: i thought, like, oh, that's
0: interesting. So I had that idea. I said, well, I wonder how it would sound if I had took back the inside of the grown stick and I put it inside of the soprano. It was very, it was very, it was a very cool sound. It was certainly a sound that I'd never heard before uh, coming out of soprano saxophone. So, so instances like that, where it's not something that I totally think about on my own, but but I I certainly get inspired by other people. I always say my, if if I use this word loosely, (laughs) uh, humbly I should say, I always say my my genius is not me coming up with original thoughts, but just being able to find things that are very cool or interesting and being able to, to make it my own. I guess to be able, not to create it or invent it, but just being able to own it.
1: Well, I love following you on social media because, you know, for example, the other day I was uh, paging through Instagram and there's Sam Newsom with a soprano saxophone in his hand, but also a long plastic tube coming, you know, coming out of the top of it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking, well, that's what you expect when you let the scientist just figure out what he can make this thing do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's it's fun for me.
0: It's like, I guess for me, I'm not really doing it for, obviously for for commercial games <laughs> but, it, but it is just something it's just uh, it, it, it keeps my relationship with the instrument and with music fresh and fun so it's almost like a, I'm sort of creating through the uh, perspective of a, of a small child just discovering something for the first time or uh, coming into it without any preconceived notions of how it should
2: be
1: You know, and I think you've hit on something so important there, because no matter what our individual creative pursuits might be, or just our lives in general, I think it's very easy to get kind of locked into a place where we're, we have the same stimuli all the time, and we react the same way to those stimuli, and kind of breaking yourself out of those boxes can be really challenging. So I totally understand your desire to find ways to just to think differently about making music.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I mean, part of my struggle is wondering if I should actually rein it in. Like, so I, sometimes I think, well, you know, I'm getting older. Maybe I should, you know, stop all this experimentation and just start doing something a little more conventional and, you know, maybe thinking thinking more commercially, but then I think, you know, that, that would be much fun for me. So I thought, well, maybe that will be my sound. That will be my brand. Like that will be what people will know me for. Like someone who is on a tireless pursuit of finding new sound rather than having a particular sound. And sort of exploiting that probably the duration of my career, you know, just be known as someone who has a sound or sounds that are constantly in flux.
1: I think that's. I mean, that sounds really exciting to me. Although I think you could probably make a case that after you've done that for long enough, that I mean, I know you've done like the the monk and duke record or whatever but you know if you made a if you made a conventional record for you that would be as out of left field you know as as anything else yeah yeah,
0: absolutely (laughs) it's funny you say that because recently i've been posting uh on facebook uh just videos of me playing over standards and i'm I'm always i'm actually always surprised that like how uh excited people are to to actually see them because it's like like normally if I post something maybe like maybe three people might share it or something like that. But then I'll post something and be blowing over whatever every quarter of may and it's like twenty shares and everybody's talking about it. And I <laughs> I think you just because they don't get a chance to hear me do that very often. So if like you said, like that me playing over standards can be as Coming out of left field as someone else putting tube extensions to the, on their instrument. <laughs> yeah,
1: I I don't know who I'm paraphrasing when I say this, but the, the the beautiful thing about freedom is that you can be free to play inside conventions as well as outside of them. This is...
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
1: So chaos theory is is rare for a couple of reasons. And we we talked about the fact that it's a, an album for prepared saxophone, but the other thing it is is an album for solo saxophone. And again, this yeah. is certainly not your your first foray by any stretch of the imagination into that world. But I don't, this could easily be my own ignorance, but I don't know of all that many solo horn players who do it with the the regularity that you do. I mean, you play live on solo saxophone uh, quite often. You record on solo saxophone. And I just wanted to, to ask you about that. What particular challenges or what particular uh, joys and opportunities it presents to you? I guess for me,
0: what I like about um, playing solo is that, you know, I'm not really influenced by other people. So when I, I mean, most of my, you might say, the inspiration is, you might say, self-appropriate. So therefore, you know, I can my my vision or or just whatever's coming out musically, you know, is unhindered. So I like that fact of just being able to present something that's uncompromised. Because you know, typically whenever I whenever I play with other people and just the nature, the democratic nature of Playing jazz is all about compromise. You know it's all about negotiation. you know you, you have an idea, but oftentimes the the, the the idea is not going to be presented in an uncompromised fashion because you have to allow other people to interact and and interpret that idea. But I like this that that notion of just being able to to put it out there unhindered. and also, you know, I can deal with a lot more uh, dynamic range whenever I'm playing in a solo context. You know, when you're playing with uh, drums, bass, or piano, or guitar, you know, it's, you know, volume-wise, I certainly have restrictions, you know. Like, playing pianissimo oftentimes is not an option. Or or even, like, some of the extended techniques I like to play on the soprano, you know, sometimes it, it's, it's really about finishing the air through the instrument. So I can't always blow at full volume, you know, in order to make the multiphonic sing. So playing in a solo context, it just allows me to deal with just a broader range of sound and, and dynamics in a way that I can't when I'm playing with other people.
1: Man, testify about that, because I... Uh, when I play professionally, I'm playing mostly with singer-songwriters. I'm not a, a jazz musician. And so okay. I am usually playing with full bands uh, where uh, that are full amplified bands. And, and I'm always yeah. commenting to the people that I'm playing with that, you know, it's super fun to play with you. I'll just let you know, though, that every solo I take has to start at about 75% of <laughs> everything I can possibly do volume-wise, because even amplified, yeah, yeah. I just can't. I just can't compete, you know, so the the ability when I when we I occasionally do play completely acoustic shows with those folks or just duo shows. And in those situations, it just it feels so refreshing because there is so much more to the saxophone than just wailing. There's it has so many more colors than that. But, yeah, I agree with you that in many situations, a lot of its potential is eliminated just because of the negotiation of volume.
0: can't think of like i mean there are just so many situations where maybe even things that i play solo that i would try to do that with a group it just would not work you know you know simply because of the volume like uh, for example with the tube extensions you know sometimes uh i'll have something that causes the uh soprano to sound maybe a couple of octaves lower so as you know the lower it gets especially I mean when it's the soprano sound is being lowered. You know, it it's, it's very it's a very low volume. So it's like even uh coming through a PA system, I mean it there's still a lot of subtleties to the sound. And it's not like me playing a baritone saxophone. So so there's the so just the overall volume is still very soft. So when I'm playing, you know, with a, a bass and drummer, you know, it's like all of those subtleties get lost, and, and a lot of times I can't even play what I originally intended to play. I kind of have to play what I'm able to play, you know, giving I guess, the, the volume constraints. So again, it goes back to uh, just not having to constantly compromise the sound that I'm going for.
1: When I uh, put Chaos Theory on for the first time, I—I uh, I guess we, you know, we we all fall into these patterns. I thought that I would have a pretty good idea what to expect, and I was really happy with the way that the album, again and again, kind of confounds those ideas. It certainly—I think if you if people just listen to us talk and luckily they're hearing samples from the album during our conversation so hopefully some of what i'm about to say has already been conveyed by the music itself but uh, i think if you just said oh it's an album of a saxophone that's been made to make weird noises and it's by itself people a lot of people would think like Okay, that sounds terrifying, and I have a general idea of what it's going to sound like. And the album, again and again, just forces you to confront the fact that there's so much you can do. Like, for example, there are times when this is like an almost danceable record, and not almost. I think there there are some like some grooves on it and things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's I'm not in any way saying that you have to have those things for the album to be listenable. I'm only saying that the fact that that can be true. On an album that is for solo prepared saxophone, is kind of great, <laughs> and you know the fact that there's moments where you're like bobbing your head and thinking, "Oh wait, I'm listening to a solo prepared saxophone album." <laughs> I didn't realize this was head bobbing music, but it turns out that it is. I think that's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty amazing, and I, I think I guess it speaks to your connection to physical movement where performance is concerned. Yeah, I guess for
0: me, I'm, I guess part of my struggle with playing solo is, you know, I, initially, you know, I was certainly influenced by people like Evan Parker and Steve Lacey, who both, both of whom have, you know, released, you know, large bodies of work, you know, in, in the solo saxophone context. And I, I found myself falling into a trap that many, saxophonists do uh, where they try to imitate evan parker because it's so it's so enticing just like the circular breathing and getting into all of these like weird overtones but then after a while i was like you know that's not really me it's like my experience with the music is much I, i think much broader than i think his experience you know because like for me you know starting off as a tenor like a uh, bebop or post-bop kind of saxophonist simply playing very traditional music and then gravitating to the soprano and then getting to more of a, a world music sound and then that leading to more experimental stuff. So my experience just as a saxophonist, you know, it, it covers a, a broader range certainly of, of, the, of the history of the music. So I always feel like if I'm and being truly myself, I want my albums to reflect that you know I want the reason to be why I don't sound like maybe a typical i don't know European improvised music guy who's who's playing this type of album. Why I won't sound like that because my experience is much different from from those casts. a lot of times they don't start off you know playing uh Sydney Bisset and, and really going through the whole bebop thing, learning how to play over standards and, you know, playing transcribing solos and playing licks and all twelve keys and all of, you know, just the 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 rigors of of learning how to play. You know, sometimes you know a lot of times they, they're coming at it from a purely improvised music context. So and certainly I embrace that element too, but I do have this more conventional side, so the, I guess the grooves and I guess the more accessible part of the of the CD does come from you know my that traditional connection or more conventional connection that I had to the music.
1: the music to talk about membership i've been recording conversations with jazz musicians since 2007 i think it's really important work i think it deserves public support and i'd also like to be able to do it for my living if you agree that the jazz session is worth supporting become a member today for just five dollars a month at the join you'll get a monthly bonus episode early access to every show and a yearly gift we had several new members join this past week. Huge thanks to Jason, Colleen, Ryan, Yui, and Ken for signing up. Also, big thanks to Lance for doubling his pledge. Help me make the show for decades to come by becoming a member today at thejazzsession.com slash join. Now, back to the episode. Done a fair amount of work with dancers as well.
0: Oh, absolutely! I mean, at at the moment, I'm actually working with uh, the Mark Morris Dance Company. Um, Oh wow! uh, Yeah, he was—he was a couple of years ago. He was commissioned to do a piece for the fiftieth anniversary of the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, and it was uh, debuted in Liverpool. So, Ethan Iverson wrote the music and I'm a part of that eclectic ensemble so we debuted there it was a big hit and you know and they we've been working with the show ever since uh, they actually just got back from a a seven week tour in the UK I wasn't able to go just because of Long story, but you know, I, I have a four time teaching gig, so I think I should pretty much explain it. Yeah. But you know, they they've given me you know, dates, you know, well into two thousand twenty. And actually next week, uh, May eighth through the eleventh, we're gonna be at the at, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. So I'm pretty excited about that.
1: What's it like to play and be able to see people kind of physically embody the music in front of you?
0: Well, you know, I I think when you, when it's in that context where you have a person from another medium interpreting it, it's, you know, you really get to the the essence of the music. I guess it makes you appreciate just the, the essence of the music. Like, for example, there are certain things, certain qualities about improvisation that a musician would appreciate that. Would totally go over a dancer's head, you know, like like someone, uh, like for us, like someone being able to play at breakneck speed or 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 be able to, uh, you know, play uh, Cherokee through the keys, <laughs> that type of thing. Like that would be very impressive to us as musicians. But if you're a dancer trying to interp- interpret that, like those types of skill sets don't really translate very well and probably doesn't mean very much. So for me, just playing with dancers, I guess it it gets me more in touch with, I I think with what's more, what's more uh, human and even what's more universal about music.
1: And I feel like I've seen you apply some of those principles of dance to actually your own performances, I mean, I mean, in terms of uh, all the way to how you move on stage while playing the saxophone, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I've um, I've always been a a, a fan of, of sort of taking ideas of how we were not supposed to do something and then actually start doing it because, you know, as you know, when you first learn to play. You know your teacher always says don't move. The only thing that should, only thing that should be moving are your fingers. <laughs> and certainly, I, I understand why a student would be taught that. But I always thought too, well, what's wrong with movement if it's deliberate? You know, it's it's one thing when it it's a, a uncontrollable thing, or and it's certainly if it gets in the way. All of you actually being able to execute your ideas, but if you can execute your ideas and then you're you're moving as a way of enhancing your ideas, then that's a different type of relationship with the movement.
1: And that instruction to not move, which you're quite correct I certainly also received, is that there are a lot of musicians to whom that would seem absolutely ridiculous. Like you you couldn't imagine saying to uh you know some arena level rock band hey just stand up there and don't move um or you know to any hip-hop act you know just stand there on the stage and say your words and don't move around you know we expect movement in lots of other kinds of performances but i think when we get to kind of instrumental music like this we like all of that kind of gets tossed into this same recital style basket that seems incredibly limiting
0: Absolutely. You know, I I was telling my wife the other day, uh, that sometimes, you know, I I told you earlier, I I like to oftentimes go on YouTube and just check out, see what I can find. And I'm I'm sometimes curious how the music, I I perceive things, like if I just turn off the sound and just watch them, because I'm I'm pretty curious about the visual. And in many instances, I'm Fascinated how with, with more traditional jazz, just how visually it looks just very bland. You know, I'm just, like musically it's great, but when I'm just watching them play, like it's just nothing there, for, it's nothing interesting for me to, to look at. Whereas I feel like with other types of music, you know, there seems to be more movement. I mean, there's more of a, a visual component to the music. For example, uh, classical saxophonists are very exaggerated with the movement. <laughs> I mean, almost, I mean, to the point where it's almost, it you know, almost seems a choreograph. And as you mentioned, with, with rock bands, with rock saxophonists, or even experimental, uh, people who play more experimental music, there there's sense, there tends to be more of a visual component to the music. So, I mean, and I certainly, uh, purposefully you know, try to do that because, you know, I, I mean, for, for me, it's, it helps to loosen me up. And I also understand from the audience's perspective, like, it gives them something else to, to latch on to other than what you're omitting musically.
1: I recently, uh, I'm talking about my own musical experience more than I almost ever do, but it, it, I hope it's, it's, uh, relevant. I recently played in a, a, recital of, uh, the music of Sun Ra, um, and, uh, you know, that was done here in the, the area where I live. And, uh, during the recital, we uh, showed videos on the wall behind us of Sun Ra's band kind of in between the pieces that we played. And, well, you do not have to watch too much of Sun Ra's band <laughs> to realize that the visual element of performance can be really arresting and powerful. I mean, that, yeah, you know, without ever letting go of the quality of the music, uh, they were able, I my guess is to interest people who might not have otherwise been interested because they had such a strong kind of thematic visual element to their performance as well. I mean, I think that reached across lines to bring in other people who the music alone, you know, just on record, might not have been enough for, because there's just yeah. something about watching them that you just can't look away from. Uh, and, you know, obviously I'm not suggesting everyone needs to wear, you know, brightly colored hats and
2: <laughs> rhinestone
1: robes and everything. I'm not saying they shouldn't yeah. either, but but in any case, I think uh, there is something really powerful about that and about being able to, to be drawn into the performance of it, not just the sound.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I, I, mean, I think some of it, too, stems from... Uh, the resurgence in jazz that happened during the 1990s, you know, because that's when the, you know, there was a lot of young people who were very excited about playing more traditional jazz. They didn't necessarily feel they had to go the commercial route of playing smooth jazz in order to make a living. So, you know, they were certainly they were more. I think there was a certainly a, a much uh, broader interest. Uh, in, in, uh, traditional jazz. And I think with that also came a very conservative approach, you know, not just musically, but even how they presented it themselves. You know, it was always, you know, we always wore suits and, and in many ways we, we presented ourselves as almost kind of like classical musicians. I mean, it was, it's so like we took this kind of classical approach to music. That was I guess traditionally it has always been very very lively i mean certainly it sort of went against the grain of how classical music was even played or perceived, so we actually we brought this kind of neoclassical approach to jazz and in there are certainly some players who are breaking away from that, but i I know from my just from my own struggles and in desires to break away from it i I know that it I came into it through that movement, and in in, so I understand why a lot of players, you know, still uh, present themselves in their music in that way.
1: And it it seems fair to say that uh, racism played a pretty big part in that, too, that there was a certain need to assume a kind of, like, traditionally accepted professional appearance in order to get... Uh, audiences, you know, generally white audiences, to take black musicians seriously. I mean, I feel like there's a, a certain amount of respectability politics that kind of factors yeah, yeah, into ab- that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, I, I, mean I, I think maybe we both can agree that I think, you know, certainly what Marcellus was spearheading this idea, you know, it went in coming from classical, mm-hmm. you know, and I think one of his frustrations was always that jazz was never really perceived or was was given the same respect as classical. So I think for him, part of his mission has been bringing sort of that same perception of classical music to jazz. But in some ways, I feel like it has hurt the music in that, you know, I think certain generations, you know, they've lost touch with the vitality of it. So it... it It does come across as being sterile at times.
1: mentioned uh, just now that you also have a full-time gig. You're a a teacher of music, professor of music at uh, Brooklyn campus of uh, Long Island University. And I recently uh, had Mappa Elliott on the show from Mostly Other People Do The Killing, and he teaches high school in the New York area. And we Mm. got to kind of talking about whether he brings his own kind of lived experience into the classroom. And and he said, well, mostly I don't talk about the fact that I do it for a living because I think it's more important that I introduce the students to, you know, Bach and Coltrane than to the music of Mappa Elliot. He said, if there's interested students who want to talk about it kind of, you know, outside the normal classroom setting, then I definitely do that. Um, but I want to make sure that no one gets out of my classroom without at least knowing some of the great names of the music. And, you know, uh, I don't need to introduce my own stuff in there. Which yeah. I thought was okay. That's fine. Um, you teach at the college level, where it seems like there's probably a little more self-selecting group of of students who probably have already heard of Bach and Coltrane. Is my guess, but you feel free to correct me. So I wonder how your own lived experience kind of fits into to your teaching.
2: Well,
0: I think for me, I guess number one, you know, I I've, as far as Types of students that I teach. It's, it's really a mixture of music majors and non music majors. So non music majors means students who are basically taking music appreciation courses. So, you know, in a given semester, I might deal with maybe 10 music majors, but then I might have, you know, close to, you know, 80. <laughs> you know, non-music major. So for me, I'm I'm certainly thinking in a more general way. I mean, I I I don't really feel I don't feel compelled to bring in my own music. I mean, I I I also feel that you know it's more important that I that I introduce them just to a, a wide range of things. And someone and someone put it to me once. You know, if if I can just take them out of their normal, you know. Pop music playlist, you know, just for a few months, you know. Then I think I've done my my duty, you know, because I I, did, I think with a lot of the you and know, and I'm speaking particularly to the non music majors, you know, they they come in, you know, having listened to Kanye West, Carly B, or whomever, you know, whoever is popular at the time. So for me, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm not even just talking about jazz, I'm you know, trying to just show them that music can be played in many different ways. So we'll talk about uh, tube and throat singing, uh, Indian classical, the blues, jazz, uh, Brazilian music, you know, anything that, uh, for me, are inspiring me at the time. And I guess as far as me bringing in my own experiences, I think I do that in the way that i'm the kind of person i'm always curious about a lot of different things so and in, in, in some ways i feel like that makes me kind of ideal for these types of students because my interests you know are out. you know do go beyond just playing traditional jazz so i can you know listen to tooth and throat singing And say, wow! I can apply this to my music, or I can listen to Indian classical, and I can get something from that as well. So, I I think of it just being this overall experience that we are we are both uh, certainly uh, learning from in in a sort of a uh, enjoying the process.
1: Yeah, I think it's cool that you uh, get to interact with so many non music majors. For kind of for the same reasons that we were talking about before with preparing the saxophone, the you know the idea that it's easy for us to kind of get into our our lane and stay there, and it seems like it's cool that you have kind of a constant influx of like nineteen to twenty two year olds, and all the music they listen to coming into your life on a regular basis just for your own purposes, you know, let alone whatever obviously yeah, you're doing yeah. them.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think where I where I teach at, I mean, certainly, you know, it's it's a very different teaching environment than maybe being at the new school or Manhattan School of Music or, or Berkeley where you're around a lot of high performing, you know, musicians who potentially will be, you know, the next cats on the music scene. I, I think if I were in that type of situation, I might feel less compelled to do what I'm doing because I would be I think I would be heavily influenced by what they're doing. And and most likely what they're doing is something a little more conventional. So I'm kind of here in my own world, just sort of, you know, just following my own creative instincts. So I, I really don't have those types of influences. So I, I'm not, I, like, I don't come into work every day and I have to teach uh, an 18-year-old saxophonist, you know, who who wants me to help him decipher you know, a Chris Potter, a Mark Turner solo, you know, like, like this is not what I have to do. So I, so I can go on YouTube and hear some avant-garde saxophonist do something weird and think, Oh man, I want to pursue this for the next year. And I can do that uh, without having it uh, uncompromised in any way. So, so it's always, it's a, always tell people, cause they think, Oh man, it would be great if you had, this type of student or maybe maybe we should try to get like people talk to me about trying to get jobs at other places <laughs> you know that where they do have more of a larger body of those types of students and I'm all, almost like well you know what
2: this actually works for me
0: you know it's like I, I understand the lore of those other types of institutions but I think that's for my own creative vision, I think being away from that actually helps me to, to stay original. You know, I'm not, I don't get caught up in the rat race of, of trying to stay on top of the, you know, what the, the latest flavor of the month, quote, Greg Osby you know, saxophonist is doing, you know, I, I'm just able just to follow my own, as I say my own creative instincts, creative instu- intuition.
1: That sounds pretty darn cool to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced. So, yeah, it sounds pretty great. Uh, Sam, you mentioned uh, toward the beginning of this interview some, some live shows that are coming up. If folks are listening to this uh, on or about its release date, this is uh, May 8th uh, of 2019. So when can folks uh, see you play? Well,
0: uh, May 8th through 11th, I will be at uh, the Brooklyn Academy of, of Music in downtown Brooklyn. I'll be with the Mark Morris Dance Company. Uh, we'll be performing, I guess, our New York debut of the show Pepperland, which is the uh, him reimagining uh, the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. And the album and the music is actually by pianist, uh, Ethan Iverson. So just the fact that Ethan Iverson is involved, you know, it's going to be interesting. So it's a, it's an interesting group because it, uh, features myself on soprano, uh, uh, Jacob Garcik on trombone, Venice Terraza on drums, Clinton Curtis vocals and... uh, Colin Fowler on uh, on Baroque organ. So, so it's a very eclectic ensemble. Wow. So we'll be there at at band from May 8th to 11th. So that's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a great show. I mean, it's, it's unlike anything that I've done before. And oddly enough, that's one of those uh, shows where I actually get to do a lot of, of what I do. I mean, you know, because there are aspects of it where they need me to play traditional jazz, Sometimes I have to play things that are a little more world music oriented. There are times they need things that are very avant-garde. So it's like, and 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 for this particular book, uh, Ethan Iverson said he he wrote the soprano part for me. So he he was fully aware of everything that I do. So he certainly wrote it in a way that it would utilize, you know, all of my different strengths. And then also um, on May 24th, I'll be at the uh, Harlem Jazz Box. Well, it's at the uh, the uh, Greater Calvary Baptist Church. So we'll be there on Friday, May 24th, and that will be with Angel- Angelica uh, Sanchez, uh, Hillgreen, and Reggie Nicholson. And that'll be the showtime will be at 7. And then on June 3rd, I will be at the uh, Bushwood Public House and there's a improvised music series there and I'll be there with uh, guitarist Joe Morris and uh, vocalist Charmaine Lee and then from the on June 21st through the 23rd I will be at the 6th uh, annual uh, Something Else Festival it's an improvised music festival in Hamilton, Ontario and I'll be doing a couple of solo sets and then some collaborative things with some of the other artists who will be appearing on the festival. Uh, note, too, that my the release date for the CD is June 3rd. It's a, I believe it's a Monday. Fabulous. So the album will be available then.
1: That's right. I forgot to even mention that folks are getting a bit of a sneak preview today, which is uh, which is very cool. I've only been hosting this show for 12 years, so one of these days I'll figure out
2: how to actually do things
1: like promote the things that are cool about it. First of all, if I had a dollar for every uh, theremin, baroque organ, and soprano sax band I've seen, I would have zero dollars, I think is how that works out. So that sounds amazing. Uh, Sam, man, it's just—it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. I love the way you think about music and the fact that you are just uh, tirelessly and fearlessly exploring uh, where the edges are of this music that we love. Uh, the new album is called Chaos Theory. Uh, as you heard, it comes out in early June. I—I uh, I just really can't recommend it highly enough. Sam Newsom, what a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I hope that you'll come back again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. that's the show thanks to sam newsome for being my guest to the respect sextet for the theme music dave rabel designed the logo the show is on facebook at facebook.com slash the jazz session it's on twitter at jazzsesh, j-a-z-z-s-e-s-h it's on instagram at the jazz session you can find me personally on twitter and instagram at jason d crane Please do rate and review the show in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Become a member today at thejazzsession.com slash join and sign up for the newsletter, which you'll find at thejazzsession.com. Just click on the newsletter tab at the top. New episodes now coming out every Wednesday, coming up on May 15th, drummer Daphne Prieto. Come back next week for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.